Almighty God of heaven and earth, you are indeed worthy of all praise, honor, and glory. You deserve our full and undivided devotion. And we confess that our lives so often are full of busyness and distraction and frustration and overwhelmed. We often find our value in what we can do. And we promote our worth by constantly keeping all of the chaos going in our lives. Lord, we confess that this is sin. Unite our hearts, O Lord, to fear your name. Turn us to Christ and help us see that our worth and our value are not found in what we have done, but instead in what you have done for us through Jesus Christ. Our true meaning, the way we should understand ourselves and define ourselves, should be found not in our work, but in our rest. Looking to you. Father, we confess that we're constantly fiddling with the stuff of this world. And we say it gives us meaning. Grant us grace this morning that we might find our great joy and our hope and our rest and our delight in Christ alone. And what he has accomplished for us on the cross and in his resurrection. Give us faith, I pray, Lord, and repentance that we might see the refreshment and the joy that you call us to this morning and into this week ahead. We ask, Father, these things in the name of our Deliverer and Savior, Jesus Christ the Lord. Amen. Amen. As your pastor, my regular concern for you all is seldom that you will outright deny Jesus or even abandon the faith. My most frequent concern, brothers and sisters, is not that you will leave the faith, but that instead you will grow cold that you will become apathetic or even comfortable in your, in your faith. In other words, my constant burden is that you will affirm your faith alongside all of the other good things and commitments and interests and responsibilities that you have in your life. This is probably a great concern for me, for you, because it's the great concern that I have for me. Not that I'm going to abandon the faith, but instead that I'm going to bring along all these other responsibilities and interests and things that I have in front of me, and I'm going to make them of equal value in my life with what should be preeminent. I've read these verses many, many times. They've been verses that I've come back to over and over again for my own soul's sake. I read verses like Psalm 63, 1. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I read these words out loud and I pray that the Lord will do these things for me because I do not find this kind of longing, this kind of desire in my own heart. And so I ask that the Lord will do it for me as I read Psalm 63, 1. Or Psalm 
42, verses 1 and 2, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, my, for, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before my God? Psalm 27, which we read this morning, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. I have set the Lord always, Psalm 16, 8 and 9. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. All of these verses you've heard this morning, you've heard read before, and your heart is saying, Amen. That is true. That is, that is how preeminent God is. But isn't it also too that our great danger isn't that we've abandoned this God? Or that we've outright rejected Him altogether. But instead, as we walk out these doors today, and as we go into our week, in the week ahead, all kinds of thousands of other things that are not bad things, but the responsibilities and obligations and interests that, that come our way, that we've got to put our hands on, they seem to, they seem to wash away this kind of singular devotion. This is our greatest danger. We will settle for a comfortable, nominal, altogether okay kind of faith that will lull us, that will lull us not into an average, convenient faith, but brothers and sisters, it has the danger of lulling us or bringing us to apostasy. Hebrews 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers. This is the pastor talking to his church in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you with an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come To share in Christ, this is how they know they've come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Our great danger is not apostasy or simply abandoning the faith, but it's allowing so many other things to get involved in our lives that we begin making our faith and our devotion to the Lord equal with all the other responsibilities in our life. This morning we're finishing up the long list of rules that the Lord had given to Moses to give to God's people. As they were in the wilderness and then going to the land of Canaan, God says these are rules that are going to govern you as a nation. Started back in chapter 21 and we're finishing them up this morning with verse 19 of chapter 23. These lists of rules and this last chunk or this last section of rules It's for the purpose of encouraging this congregation. It's appropriate that he puts these last because he's saying all of these rules and all of this stuff will be for no good at all if you make me just one of the many things that you've got to do when you get to the land of Canaan. If if these people, if God's people go to the land of Canaan and they make the Lord one of the thousand other things that they've got to kind of take care of during the week, he's saying you will never make it. 
what he's calling them to in this passage this morning in verses 10 through 19 is to make the Lord preeminent, to make, him, make the Lord paramount in their lives. They're going into this land. They've got a lot to do. How are they going to persevere? How are they going to obey the Lord's commands? How are they going to reflect God's glory as they should? These final rules are given to them that they might not wander off, that they, might, that they may not drift away, that they may not be confronted by the culture that's around them, the Canaanite culture, and in so doing, become just like the culture that's around them instead of reflecting God's glory. So, how do we keep from drifting away? How do we keep from being led away, finally falling away? How can we keep our hearts tuned to the things of God and keep the Lord, our, our heart's singular desire and aim and treasure? How do we do that? How do we constantly keep the Lord preeminent in our life. The Lord gave his people what I'm going to call this morning rhythms to live by. Regularly bringing them back to remember and to affirm the Lord's preeminence in their lives. He gave them things to schedule into their lives so that these rhythms that they may live by will constantly recalibrate their hearts and cause them to remember what God has done and assist his people that the Lord might stay preeminent in their busy, distracted, complicated lives that could so easily just add God to the list of many things that they need to do. He's calling them to place these godly rhythms in the midst of their lives. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at two sets of rhythms the first set or category is point number one of our sermon of the sermon this morning. Point number one is the Sabbath rhythms, verses ten through thirteen. And then point number two is the festival rhythms, verses fourteen through nineteen. So the Sabbath rhythms, verses ten through thirteen. And then secondly, the festival rhythms, which is fourteen through nineteen. Look with me, if you will, in verse ten as we consider these Sabbath rhythms. Uh, these Sabbath rhythms in verses 10 through 13. For six days you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But in the seventh year you shall let it, let it rest and lie fallow. Now look with me in verse 12. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. What we find here is a clear summarization of what Jesus himself said. Jesus said in Mark chapter 2, he said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And here what we find is that the emphasis in our passage this morning is a, is a description of these two types of Sabbaths. One is a, is a yearly rhythm and the other is a weekly rhythm. The first is a yearly rhythm, that's in verses 10 and 11. And then we have a weekly rhythm in verse 12, <clears throat> both of which, however, have a reason why the Lord wants them to do these things. Notice in verse 11, it says, But the seventh year you shall let, let it rest, or the land rest, and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat. Do you see the word that there? It's giving a description of why the Lord wants them to do this. Six years of sowing and gathering, <clears throat> and then the seventh year to rest and to lie fallow, the land. Reason that the poor 
of your people may eat. And then notice the that in verse 12. It says, six days you shall do your work, but the seventh day you shall rest. Why? That your ox and your donkey may have rest. Do you see that? The emphasis here are on the reasons for this Sabbath rhythm. So notice first these six years. We see this pattern of six years given to us, sow your land and gather in the field. It's understanding here is that they would would work their land as they've been given to them. And after that, we see in contrast, it says very clearly, but in contrast, the seventh year you shall let the land rest and lie fallow. Now, it's important for us to understand that this did not mean that all of Israel did this at the same time. Everybody in Israel didn't work for six years, and then on the seventh year, nobody did anything. No, this was a scattered, this was a staggered uh, uh, rhythm that was in the midst of God's people. So all of Israel did not do this six years and seven at the exact same time, nor did any individual family do this with all their land at the same time. So if a family might have had many different sections or properties or pieces of land in various places, they would let different portions of their property lie fallow and rest on the seventh year at different times so that they would not have a full year where there would be nothing that they're doing. But they would allow that to happen in a dispersed way or in a staggered way. Why would I say that? How do you understand it that way? Well, It's very clear because of the purpose in verse 11. It says that the reason they're to do this is that the poor of your people may eat. Well, if everybody did it at the same time, then the poor would only eat every seven years. There wouldn't be many poor around if that were the case, right? And so the poor constantly had provision from those who had farms and property because there was always somebody who was allowing their land to rest and providing the poor an opportunity to go and glean from the field that was resting and lying fallow. That the poor, it says in verse 11, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beast of the field may eat. Now notice as well in verse 11 that this not only includes their regular ordinary crop, but it also includes their expensive extraordinary crop. The, 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 the cream of their, of their fruits and the, and the real special property that they had wasn't just the wheat and the barley. That was, that was what everybody grew. But if you had this pristine piece of property that actually grew grapes, their vineyard, or olive orchards, that was a pristine, that was a pricey, expensive, valuable crop. And the Lord's saying, don't, 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 Don't neglect doing this even with your valuable, pricely, expensive crop of vineyards and olive orchards. But instead, he says at the end of verse 11, you shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard, giving it to the poor, allowing the poor and the animals to glean from this. And so we see here, this is the rhythm of the six years. And it was for the purpose of caring for those who were under underprivileged, those who were vulnerable. And it was on a six years working and tilling the land and gathering its crop, and then on the seventh, allowing it to rest. This pattern, this rhythm that the Lord had given to them. Now look with me in verse 7 where it talks about the six days, this weekly rhythm, if you will. 
We see this being plied on a weekly basis. And we know this is clearly from Exodus chapter 20, the fourth commandment. And we find that in the fourth commandment, the reason the Lord gives the fourth commandment, and that is the remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, is for creation purposes. He's saying because the Lord did this back in Genesis, right? Here, though, we have another purpose. It doesn't trump the other one, but it says there's another reason why the Lord wants there to be this regular weekly Sabbath or this weekly rest. It says in verse 12, Six days you shall do your work, and on the seventh day you shall rest. Why? That your ox and your donkey may have rest. It goes on, And the son of your servant woman. In other words, the, most, the bottom of the rung in way of the people that are working in your fields and around you. The, the son of the servant woman. And the alien may be refreshed. So we find here that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, the Sabbath doesn't do anything for God. It was given to us as a gift to delight in so that we might be rested, that we might be refreshed, and that those who are around us might receive this rest and this refreshment as well. As it speaks here in verse 12 with this weekly rhythm. Now, notice with me, if you will, in verse 13. Verse 13 is the center of our text this morning. Not only in in its placement, because in the position here, we find that 13 is right in the middle of verses 10 through 19, but also in way of its emphasis. Verse 13 is really the point of the entire text. Um, And and when, when you read this, you can see that both sides of our text, verses 10 through 12, as well as 14 through 19, are all pointing back to verse 13. And saying, this is the real emphasis, and it is this. This verse is the very center, and it speaks of the diligence and the earnest care that we are to take in order to be devoted to our God. In other words, this this yearly rhythm and this weekly rhythm, those are the means. They're not the end. And this is what was happening, as Donald even explained to us this morning from the book of Colossians, that in Colossians, the Christians were getting the means mixed up with the ends. They were saying, we need to do all of these things that we used to do because this is what it's about. And uh, Paul in Colossians says, no, what, what you're supposed to be doing is devoting yourself to the Lord. And that these other things are means to that. So this rhythm, yearly rhythm, and this weekly rhythm was for the purpose of being fully and absolutely and completely devoted to God. Notice our passage in verse 13. It says, pay attention to all that I have said to you. This understanding of all that I've said to you is kind of strange in its actual, it's it's basically saying everything that I've ever said to you and everything that I'll always, that I will be saying to you. In other words, what it's saying is that you need to have your lives so tuned that whatever the Lord has said to you, you need to be ready to obey it. And whatever the Lord says to you in the future, you need to be ready to obey it. You don't need to have all kinds of other things in your life that you're paying attention to so that when the Lord speaks, you're distracted by all kinds of other things. It's interesting because the different English translations try to get at this command, this charge to pay attention. One translation says, be circumspect. Another translation says, be on your guard. Another translation says, pay strict attention. Another one, be careful to do this. Another one, be cl- pay close attention to the words of God. Do you hear in all of these different translations, the the point is this urgency, this diligence, this intensity that we are to be making sure that Christ, in our case, the Lord, is preeminent in our lives. We need to make sure we're paying attention to everything that he says. And it goes on and it says, to the point that, and this this is what the Lord was concerned about, 
the Lord was concerned here that the people were going to go into this land of Canaan and they're going to begin allowing the culture to influence them that was around them and that the culture will begin seeping into their lives to the degree that they will begin even talking about these other gods that were around them. That's why it says in verse 13, it says, Pay close, pay attention to all that I've said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods. Because that's where it begins. You begin speaking of these deities that were doing things for the Canaanites in their land. And then you begin wondering, well, if, we can, if they can do that and they're getting this privilege or benefit from their deities, then maybe we can take our God, who is the one true God, and then bring in some of their thought and cunning and wisdom and talk about their deities and bring it together and we'll have something even better. That's the danger for us, isn't it? It's the danger I was speaking of at the beginning of the sermon. It's not that you've abandoned God altogether. It's not that you've completely denied Christ. It's that you've brought in so many other things. You've allowed them to come alongside of, of Christ in the importance and preeminence that He and He alone deserves. It says that they will come to the point of making mention of the names of other gods. The Lord is calling them not to even, it says in verse 13, not to even let it be heard on your lips. Do not let these other gods be even uttered among you. Do you see the absolute devotion that the Lord is calling his people to? He's warning them of the fact that they can so easily allow these gods to gain a small place in their heart and in their affections, and they'll start calling upon the names of these gods, or at least giving their allegiance to them in some way, and they, in so doing, will turn away from the one true God who is called in the book of Exodus, the I Am, the Lord Almighty. It's important, brothers and sisters, and I want you to get this point this morning. It's important that the Lord is reminding his people here before they take off and leave this mountain and they go into the land of Canaan, he says, I want you to understand this point, and it is this, lest you forget and lest God's people in this day forgot. They were to understand themselves first and foremost as a worshiping people. Do we understand ourselves, those who have placed our faith in Christ, those who call themselves, we call ourselves those who are in Christ, do we see ourselves first and foremost as God has called us to be, and that is a worshiping community. A people who devote themselves to God first. The community that has as its first obligation the privilege to devote themselves to the one who delivered them out of the land of Egypt. This is why in Exodus 20, verse 2, right at the beginning of Ten Commandments, the Lord says this. He says, I want you to get this right before I give you the commandments, and it is this. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before you. Right? He's, he's declaring who he is in placement to everything else in your life. We're first and foremost, brothers and sisters, a worshiping community. This is vital for us to understand. You think, and, and, and I, I know you're sitting there with the list of things you had to do last week and the list of things you've got to do this week ahead, and and, and I, I'm that guy. I've got a list as well. And uh, I, I would dare say I could probably compare mine to yours, and mine would be longer, right? That doesn't make me any better. It makes me worse. Put the Lord first. 
put the Lord first. Devote to Him your day, your calendar, your to-do list, and you'll be amazed at what falls off, and you'll be amazed at how well God orders our lives if we give it to Him and we try to stop pleasing everyone around us and try to do it the way that the world so often tries to get us to do it. Maybe, brothers and sisters, the reason the Sabbath has such a, is such a burden, has become such a burden, or maybe even to some of us an annoyance, is because you see the Sabbath as the things that you can't do on that day. What you're not allowing, what you're not allowed to do on that day is what you're seeing instead of what you're supposed to be devoting yourself to. The Sabbath is to be devoted to the gospel and to the lavish treasures that we have been promised through faith in Jesus Christ. It is to foster in us a well-being, a peace, a restoration. It's supposed to give us rest for our souls and those who are around us so that when we live our lives, we live them orderly with God as preeminent. When we see it as a burden, we will never pursue it. But when we begin to affirm it as a Sabbath that the Lord has gifted us with, that we might order our lives to be devoted to Him and all the treasures that He has for us, it will become a delight. It will become a delight. And so, this morning, I'm not, I'm not calling you to the means. I'm not saying, get these means right. I'm calling you to Christ. I'm calling you to find Christ and the Lord as your treasure, as everything to you. If, if I, as your pastor, and if I, as your pastor, can personally do this in my own heart and can, and can encourage this in your heart, I'm not worried about what you do with your, with your time and with your days and with the Lord's day and with your week and with your choices. If you are devoted to the things of Christ, if you love him and see him as preeminent in your life, This is what we're after. This is what God was after as he told them to have these rhythms. First, the Sabbath rhythm of years and weeks in verses 10 through 13. Now look with me at the festival rhythms in verses 14 through 19. Verses 14 through 19, the festival rhythms. Now, this is so far and away foreign to us. It's hard for us to get our minds around this. Um, the only thing we could possibly imagine this being like is, is our holidays today, which really it's, it's next to impossible to even try to compare the two. But here they had these festival, what I'm calling rhythms, and we see three of them in our text this morning. Um, and they are they're scant in their details in this text. They're far more lavish in their details in the book of Leviticus. If you have a cross-reference Bible, maybe if you want to go and study those later, you can. But we have these three predominant uh, predominant, uh, festivals that God's people were to keep in the Old Testament. And they are described in more detail in the book of Leviticus. We're going to focus only on what's mentioned here in our text for the purpose of simply keeping our focus on what's before us. So 14 through 19, I want us to notice these rhythms of the festivals. And the first festival that we're going to look at is the festival of unleavened bread. Look with me, if you will, verse 14. Three times in the year you shall keep a festival to me. See that word keep? See that there? You shall keep a festival to me. Notice in verse 15 it says you shall keep 
the festival of unleavened bread. That's the first festival. Verse 16, you shall keep the festival of harvest, the feast of harvest, I'm sorry, the feast of harvest. And then the next sentence in verse 16, it says, you shall keep the feast of ingathering. Those are the three feasts. And notice in each one of those, he's saying, these are, these are ones you're to keep. That's, that's, that's the point. That's the thrust of this portion of passage. Three times in the year, you are to have these rhythms in your life. You're to keep these feasts to me, the Lord says. In verse 15, he speaks of this feast of unleavened bread. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread as I commanded you. You shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time of the month of Ebib. That's late March, early April for us. For in it you came out of Egypt. For in it you came out of Egypt. This is also known as the Passover. Probably most predominantly is known as the Passover or the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's hard to exaggerate how important the Exodus is to our Bible and to God's people during this time. And the, the thing that, that most clearly was displayed is that this wasn't something that they were to do and then forget, but it's something they were constantly to remind themselves of. They were to remind themselves of that fearful and faithful night when God's people left Egypt. How? In haste, to the point that they were not even able to put leaven in their bread in time for it to rise, but instead they ate unleavened bread, and they had their staff in their hand, they had their sandals on their feet, and they were awaiting God's deliverance on that night. And then when the screams went out, when all the firstborn were killed, God's people began to head out of Egypt and were delivered. God was showing himself strong over the superpower of that day, the Egyptian dynasty. And the Lord showed himself to be kind and gracious and faithful in a particular way to his people. And And then the Lord says, I want you to tell your children generation after generation about this faithful and fearful night. And that's why it says in our passage in verse 14, excuse me, verse 15, it says, um, you shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. How? As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in this particular month of Abib. Why? For it is on that month that you came out of Egypt. Now notice this last sentence, which I thought was, was amazing. Verse 15 At the end, it says, none shall appear before me. In other words, when you come to this feast of unleavened bread, none shall come before the Lord in this feast empty-handed. Do you see that? Why is this charge given here? Why is it mentioned at the end of his sentence as a part of this unleavened bread feast? When when God's people came to this feast of unleavened bread, they were not to come empty-handed, but they were to come Um, They were to come in the way that they came out of Egypt. How did they come out of Egypt? Well, they didn't come empty-handed out of Egypt, did they? See, it was a a feast of unleavened bread. So there was a lot of uh, scant eating on that night. But what we find is that the Lord's people actually had plenty. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 19, it says, But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I do in it. After that, he will let you go, and I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Notice in verse, chapter 3, verses 19 through 22, he says, I will give this people, God's people, favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and when they go, they shall not go empty. That word empty is the word for empty-handed. They will not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor, and any woman who, has, who lives in her house 
For silver and gold and jewelry and for clothing, you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, and you shall plunder the Egyptians. When they left Egypt, they did not go empty-handed, but they had their hands full of the plunder of the Egyptians. And what the Lord says is that when they come to this feast of unleavened bread, none shall appear before me empty-handed, because that's not how you left Egypt, and that's not how the Lord wants his people to come to him in this feast. What we're going to find that I, that I think is just interesting in chapter 25. Chapter 25 begins the section on tabernacle. What's the first thing Moses tells the people to do? Bring me your gold and silver because we're going to build a tabernacle so we can worship our God. Where did wandering slaves from Egypt get gold and silver? Isn't it just like God to give us everything we need to worship him? To provide us what we need to worship him. How dare we deny our God worship when he's provided us every single means to do so. So this is the, this is the feast of unleavened bread. The, Lord great, the Lord's great deliverance was to be memorialized by a feast of unleavened bread, but the emphasis was not supposed to be on what they were doing without, which was leavened bread, but instead what the Lord had given to them. As they delivered, as the Lord delivered them, they plundered the Egyptians, and in so doing, they were to remember how God provided for them. The second feast is a feast of harvest. This is in verse 16. Notice with me. It says, you shall keep the feast of harvest. What does it say about the feast of harvest? Here is just a few things. It says, the feast of harvest is to be kept of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. This feast of harvest was also also referred to in scriptures as the feast of weeks, or it's also called the feast of Pentecost. Pentecost. Why? Because it was 50 days exactly after the Passover. And that's exactly the way it worked in the New Testament. Pentecost of Exodus or Acts chapter 2 was 50 days after the Passover. And here we see this feast, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Pas- uh, Pentecost, the Feast of Harvest. And it was when the first fruits started coming out of the field, especially the grain fruits, the, the wheat and the barley. When those first began to bud... This is when this feast would take place, 50 days after Passover. Remember that God's people, when they came out of Egypt, they were coming out of a land that saw their prosperity and their provision depending solely upon the Nile in Egypt and their associated deity with that Nile. And then they were leaving not only Egypt, but they're going into a land called the land of Canaan, where in Canaan the prosperity and the provision was given to them by stirring up the fertility gods and the ceremonies that they had on different high places. And the Lord says, you people, as God's people, are supposed to be distinct. You're not supposed to be like the Egyptians who see their their prosperity and and their provision coming from the Nile or from the Canaanites that see their prosperity and their provision coming from their deities and fertility gods. But you will be those people who are distinct by seeing that God is the one who gives you your provision and your prosperity. It is the one true God who you are to trust in to provide for you. And as these first fruits are coming to bear, as they're first starting this wheat and grain, getting the first fruits of this this crop, they're seeing this. Now, this is the first time this word first fruits occurs in our Bible. And it's astounding how it's used throughout our Old Testament, and especially in the New Testament, as Paul picks up this theme of first fruits, and he begins describing the importance and the value of this. You see, the first fruits of any crop is a, 
is, a, is an example and a display of how good or bad that crop is going to be. It's a foretaste of what's to come. The, the first fruits, this, this feast of harvest, they're to celebrate and rejoice because as the, as the first fruits are starting to bud, it's giving them excitement for what is to come. The, the crop has not fully come in yet. It's just starting to come in. And as it first starts coming in, it gives them an opportunity to see with great excitement what, how the Lord's going to provide for them in the future. It is a taste of the good that the Lord is bringing them and will bring to them in the future. The quality and the privilege privilege of the first fruits is a sure evidence of what is to come. And then Paul picks up on this phrase in the New Testament, especially in the book of Romans. And he tells all of those who are in Christ that are in the midst of incredible hardship and difficulty in their life, They are faithfully laboring in this city called Rome with all of the culture that's around it. They're being influenced and they're struggling to be a a, a distinct congregation. And they're wondering whether the Lord's actually doing anything at all. What is the Lord doing? We're trying to be faithful. We're doing all this and it seems to be crumbling around us. And we're suffering and being persecuted for our faith. And in Romans 8 verse 18 it says this. uh, Paul says to the church in Rome, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Do you see what he's doing? He's saying, notice the sufferings of this present time. Don't let that fool you. (laughs) Because there is incredible glories that are to come that will be revealed to you. That's worth it. And then he goes on in Romans 8 and he says this. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, do you see how he's placing this as a, let's look at the world, let's look at creation, let's look at everything that's out here. All of it is groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves are groaning. Listen to how Paul uses this. We ourselves who have the first fruits... Of the Spirit. In other words, those of you who are regenerated, those of you who have the Spirit of God in you, that's a first fruit. That's the beginning. That's the taste. That's the evidence of what God is going to do in you in the future. Don't miss this. When God regenerated us, He didn't give us everything at once. We have glorious days ahead of us, brothers and sisters. We have, we have something that we can await for. It's like these first fruits, he says, who have been, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. And what are we awaiting? We're awaiting the redemption of our bodies. Paul here is using this idea of first fruits of saying that when you receive the Holy Spirit, don't think the Lord was done with you. He who began a good work in you will do what? Will complete it. He who started something in you, he's not, he's not going to let you continue where you're at. He's bringing you along. He has a plan, and the Spirit is the first fruit. It's like when the grains and the barley start showing up and showing their fruit. And, and that's evidence of what the, what's going to happen in the future as the Lord provides for it. This feast of harvest was to be to God's people a great hope that what the Lord has started in us when he created us as his people, he's going to finish and it's going to be glorious. 
We consider that the sufferings of this present time are not to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us on that day. The point of the Feast of Harvest and the concept of first fruits is that we are able to rejoice with hope, with confident hope in what the Lord has given to us through His Spirit. Now, this new life in Christ is only a foretaste. It's only the first fruits of the sure and very good day of glorification when all sin and struggle will fall away. Hallelujah. And then the nations will look at us and they'll say, the Lord has done great things to them. And then we will say, Psalm 126, the Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. Do you see what's, do it now. It's going to be sowing in tears now. One day, brothers and sisters, the Lord has promised us that there will be shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping today, bearing his seed for sowing, listen to this because I want you to hear it, shall come home. You hear that? You shall come home one day with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. The fruit is going to be abundant. Just because we can't see it now and all we have is this foretaste, this, this glimpse and this glimmer, we wonder, this isn't worth it. And the, and the Lord is saying through the Feast of Harvest, and he's saying through Paul this morning, he's saying, brothers and sisters, it is worth it. These are just the first fruits. These are just the beginnings of what the Lord is doing in us and through us. And in his church, he's bringing us home. And oh, what a day that will be. Now, That idea of home isn't the focus of the Feast of Harvest. The focus is the beginning of the crop. The focus is the first fruits. But if we left there, if there was only two feasts, it would be kind of difficult. But there's three feasts. And the third feast is the Feast of Ingathering. And this is when we go home. This is what God was doing in his people, saying, there will be a day that I will gather all people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And I'll bring them home. This feast that they were to be, that they were to have is also called the Feast of Tabernacles in the Scriptures. And it says at the end of verse 16, it says, you shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year. And here, know that they don't have a calendar on the wall. Their understanding of the year is agricultural year. In other words, it's the end of the harvest. It's around September when everything has been brought in. All the abundance of their crops have been brought in at this point, And they can see full measure what God has done. And it's a day of rejoicing. It's an exuberant day. It's when the Lord has gathered all of his, or the, the people of God have gathered all their crops in. And it's to be a metaphor, an example of how God is gathering his people and bringing them to his place. Bringing him to dwell with them. That's why it's also called a Feast of Tabernacles or a Feast of Dwellings. And the idea is that for seven days they'd live in tents. And they live in tents basically to example and to show that they were a people who once were wandering and sojourners. They were guided exiles by the, the, by the, by the flame of fire, the pillar of, of fire and the cloud. And that they are no different today and we are no different today. We're wandering sojourners and guided exiles through this land We're being led by God's word, and we're wondering where we're going 
and when this is going to end. And this festival, this feast, is one that God's people were to do to remind them that there will be one day when God will gather all his people in. Do you think through, many of you have read your Bibles many, many times, think through how many times Jesus used the metaphor of the field, the wheat and the barley and the sowing of the seed and all these other things to speak of what? The kingdom of God. Jesus is pulling it from the Old Testament. He's saying, you guys know this is true. This is how we live our lives. These are the rhythms of our lives, these different feasts. And he's tying all that together and saying, in the same way, the Lord's going to be faithful. Every year, the Lord was faithful at Passover. The Lord was faithful at the Feast of Harvest. The Lord was faithful at the Feast of Ingathering. Why would you not think the Lord's going to be faithful to bring us to the end? You see, that's, that's the point. These rhythms were to remind them of how faithful God continues to be in their life. This was a time of lavish abundance as the harvest was finally and fully gathered in for the year. This in-gathering was when they'd live in tents to remind themselves of the fact that they were wandering. And it was to remind them also that God's people will arrive one day to their promised dwelling place. They would no longer live in tents. They will no longer be exiles and sojourners. But the Lord, one day, he delivered his people in the past. He's providing and leading his people now. And that he's got an aim. The Feast of Ingathering is that one day he will gather all of his people to this promised rest that he has given to them. This is exactly what Paul continues in Romans chapter 8. Earlier I read Romans chapter 8. He continues in Romans chapter 8 and he says this. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, you know what he did? He called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Do you see what's happening here? Paul is saying, just as sure as the Lord predestined you and called you and now you are justified, just as sure as all of those things are happening We need to know with confidence that the Lord will one day glorify us. He will bring us home. He will allow us to come to the place of our rest. And we can be sure of that. These feasts were to be regular reminders, traditions, and rhythms inserted into the lives of God's people that they may stop and remember and recalibrate their lives to make God first and foremost in their hearts that they might be reminded that they are first and foremost a worshiping community that we might be reminded as God's people that we are first and foremost God's and not our own do you need to stop and let that set in in your life I mean especially with that crazy week you had last week or that crazy week that you're going to have this week do you need to stop and remember first and foremost Lord it's about you It's not about all this other stuff. He delivered us. He keeps us. And he will bring us home. These last few verses in our passage uh, befuddle people. (laughs) Um, It makes people want to toss their Old Testament as being irrelevant and not helpful. So let's bring some understanding here. Notice that verse 18 and 19 have three different sections of commands in it. 
Each of these three commands relate to the particular feast that they just got finished talking about. You can see some of them. Some of them. Notice in verse 18 it says, You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leaven. You see, that's the feast of unleavened bread. Or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The point here is this, is that this was something that took place in Canaanite culture. They would mix blood with yeast and they would drink it for the purpose of um, their ceremonies. And the Lord's saying here that when you do this feast of unleavened bread, it's so easy because there are similarities there to think that you can bring in their understanding of their worship and their pagan things and bring it into your worship and it can all come together and the lord says be careful do not offer blood with my sacrifice with anything leaven or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning because this is how they do it you do not do it that way you do it the way i prescribed it the way i commanded you to do it and it's to be remember me and what i did to deliver you out of egypt so that's 18 in verse 19 you see that this speaks of the feast of harvest, because it talks of the first fruits here. In verse 19, it says, The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. Could it be that God's people, once they got into the land and once they saw the first fruits of the harvest and they started seeing the lavish way that God provided for them, that they may be apt not to bring the best, but maybe the second best? That they may be apt to scrape what's off the top for themselves because that's the preeminent that's that's the best of the crop and then give God what's left over could it be that God's people would be in that danger I think so because in verse 19 the point here is this the best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God you see what he's doing here he's saying in this feast of harvest don't think that you can you can shirk God and give him second best he wants the best of what you have because he's the one that gave it to you and that is the way you can honor him and make him ha- what preeminent in your lives. It's by giving him the first. Now, the last sentence is the one that's most convoluted. You shall not boil a young goat in, her, in its mother's milk. And uh, it's amazing how much is written on that one line. It occurs three other times in our Bible. Uh, most do think that it was a pagan religious ceremony where the purpose was for the purpose of fostering fertility. The understanding is that the milk was what keeps things alive. And so how do you make a more fertile or more productive um, goat? Well, you boil the goat in the mother's milk. And so doing, they would typically kill the goat in that process. We can see that this is an illogical and unnatural act altogether. So what the Lord's doing here is he's saying, first, don't be doing the things that the pagan culture is doing. And I think it also can help us understand a little bit here. Maybe I'm twisting this, but I think, I think it does apply. Don't be surprised when the pagan culture around us does really stupid things. And don't be surprised when so often the church, out of trying to be kind and nice, begins adopting stupid things in their worship service for the purpose of being nice and kind. can Can we say that our culture has gotten to a point where it's making ridiculous and very stupid claims? And can we say that too often as a church, we've been those who've been willing to adopt and accept and just love people no matter what, even if they're declaring themselves to be something that they're not, or identifying themselves because of their wicked lifestyle, or all kinds of other things? 
And so do you see how this is not so far off? We think, this is ridiculous, this is crazy. Just as crazy as the kid who identifies himself as a 65-year-old lady so he can get a rebate at Target. Right? It's ridiculous. And yet, our culture goes that way. So, we can see the absurd and the irrational, the cunning wisdom, supposed wisdom of the culture, so often can seep into the community of God's believers and begin even being a part of our worship service. And it never should be. So God's people were to keep these regular rhythms in their lives. that They may constantly be coming back to the fact that the Lord alone is preeminent. We are, and we are first and foremost to be understanding ourselves as God's people who are worshiping people. A people before our Lord who delivered us and who saves us. I hope you can see the value as we look at these rhythms and then bring the principles over, not the practices, into our New Testament rhythms. Don't we have New Testament rhythms? I think we do. We have the Lord's Day worship. We have Lord's Supper, which was the Feast of Passover brought into the New Testament. We have baptism. All of these are to be reminders of the very same things that all these feasts were to remind them of. And as we gather on Lord's Day every, every week, and as we worship him and turn our hearts to him and, and say that he is preeminent, you see, the point isn't that you come to church every single Sunday. That's very good, and, and I would encourage that strongly. But you see that if it, you can easily come to church every single Sunday and your heart be far from having Christ as preeminent in your life. See, the point is that if you have Christ as preeminent in your life, there's no other place you will want to most be than with the Lord's people. That's how it'll be. You want to gather with God's people. You need to be with God's people. Why? Because Christ is preeminent in your life. And I need to be with other Christ followers because I haven't been all week long. And I need their encouragement and they need my encouragement. We need to be there together sharing and singing and praying God's truth into one another's life. These are the rhythms that God has given to us. The Lord has given us these activities that we might keep our hearts rightly focused and faithfully pursuing with absolute devotion the Lord. Everything in all creation, even our very lives, should be lived in devotion with the aim and end to glorify Jesus Christ as our Savior. So how do we keep our Lord preeminent in our lives? Well, in the book of Colossians, the church there thought the way we do this is keep ourselves busy doing all these things that we found from the Old Testament. We've got to keep ourselves going in those areas. And though those things may be good, they're only the means to the end. Paul really hits the, head on the, uh, the, the nail on the head when he says the only way you're going to keep the Lord preeminent in your life is by fixing your full and absolute devotion upon the person of Jesus Christ. And he says it this way in Colossians 1. Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers and authorities. All things were created through him and for him. You know what that means? It means he's preeminent. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. 
For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's make Christ preeminent in our lives. Fix your heart and affection upon him. Let us pray.